Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Sweet 212 Sessions. As those of you who've listened to our previous episodes will know, our plan to relaunch Sweet 212 as a fortnightly show with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes were put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. Instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers and others about their work, conducted via Skype, so apologies in advance for the diminished audio quality, and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and beyond in the 21st century through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them, and how the socio-economic conditions of the time have affected their practices. All of these will be made available for free via SoundCloud, but I'd still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet212 as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet-212. Today, I'm talking to filmmaker and artist Diamantas Narkevichus, who was born in 1964 in Utena in the Lithuanian Soviet Socialist Republic and now lives and works in Vilnius. He graduated from the Arts Academy in Vilnius as a sculptor and spent a year in London in 1992-93. On his return to Lithuania, he was concerned with site-specific objects, but his strong interest in narrative led him to record interviews and conversations with artists. This process evolved into an exploration of different narrative structures through film and video, the work for which he's now best known. He represented Lithuania at the 49th Venice Biennale in 2001 and exhibited at the 50th Biennale in 2003 with Utopia Station, curated by Molly Nesbitt and Hans-Ulrich Arborist. He showed at Manifesta 2 in Luxembourg in 1998 and has exhibited in London, Manchester, Dublin, Paris, Melbourne and many other cities. So, Diamantus, welcome to Suite 212. Hi, hello. Hi, it's great to have you on. I think I first saw your work in Brighton in the Cine City Festival, maybe 2005, 2006. So I've been following you for a long time and we'll come on to some of your specific works later in the programme. But these sessions have been recorded in response to the COVID-19 outbreak, which of course is affecting all of Europe. So I wonder if you could tell our listeners what it's been like to be in Vilnius during this period? No. Quarantine is very much softened in Vilnius. And I think, in general, the city did quite well with this COVID virus because we stopped quite early. Social restrictions started quite early and it was very strict. I mean, we couldn't go outside and it worked well. I think at the moment we have 1,500 people infected and I think less than 50 or around 50 who had passed away. So it's, uh, for the country of 3 million, it's relatively low numbers. People are thinking that the pandemic passed, at least this so-called first wave. Yeah, it's kind of gradually normalizing. We are free to go. We take coffees and, well, food is still takeaway, not uh, we can sit in the restaurants. But next week we will do that also again. So I think if you can eat indoors in the restaurant, it means, I think, that it's almost normal. There will be some restrictions for bigger gatherings, like possibly sports and culture events. So probably theatre will be, like actors and musicians will be suffering probably more. Public museums are open already. Private galleries and private foundations are not open yet, but they are planning to open soon. So that basically 
the situation we have with COVID-19. Has it affected your work? Well, I'm teaching. So the academic life was uh, going on, still going on. We started to work from distance using online streaming platforms. And it is quite okay. Even I'm teaching at um, sculpture department. And for students, it's not so easy to work when they have no access to studios. Basically, they cannot use space they would like to use. And also, they have no access to uh, materials they used to work with. I mean, not uh, classical materials like clay or plaster or something. In a broader sense, you know, like they cannot really access basically studios. And I think this was the biggest issue for students of sculpture department here in Vilnius at, at the academy. But... Nevertheless, they had a chance, chances to rethink about the work. And I think this period for some students was very productive in a sense to understand what they are studying, what is, how vulnerable this kind of studies or path they choose in their lives and how much they depend on um, outside factors. And yeah, it was, I had very interesting discussions with my students and uh, it was, I think, overall quite a positive period. In general, I would say at the beginning of this uh, lockdown, it seemed like young people are feeling more emotionally affected or kind of, it was more difficult to be restricted from uh, social kind of life, social activities. But then it seems like they are doing also quite okay. They adapted, and so we now are thinking that, if I'm correct, probably in a week, maximum two weeks, the students will be able to go to to studios to work individually. Maybe not uh, the lectures where there will be many students, but uh, individually they will be able to go to the studios quite soon. They say before first of June for sure. Oh, wow. Okay. That's that's quite encouraging to hear because I teach at the Royal College of Art in London and I've had similar experiences with my students, of course, not being able to access their studios and struggling with distance learning, online learning. Some of the, the group seminars we've been doing have been quite interesting, but the tutorials have been very similar to your experience. Lots of my students taking the time to reflect on their practice, maybe change direction. So it's interesting to hear that internationally you've had quite a similar experience. I wanted to just move the conversation on now and ask what you've been working on maybe this year or the last year or two. Since a year and a few months, I was preparing a longer film. I've got some modest support, financial support from Lithuanian Film Institute to make a longer film this time, at least one hour. So it's kind of almost full length feature film. We were preparing shootings for end June, beginning of July. It's all here. It's supposed to be all done here in Lithuania, so we don't have to travel. Also, we do not involve at this stage anyone in the team from abroad. So, in fact, this period of six, seven weeks I have been at home and at my studio was quite positive in the sense that I had even more time to read and to, to work on script, on dialogue. And um, I, I see it as a good opportunity to concentrate on something I would be not that much uh, possibly in the normal circumstances. And I see it positive. Well, there was some something missing, you know, when you're preparing film, you want to meet with team and have a 
discussion with one or another department together and kind of, you know, to build a little bit like a team. So this probably would, but we still have some time. But so in general, I see this period quite okay for me. Maybe it would be even more productive, but there were some aspects that it was uh, even, yeah, it provided me extra time or extra concentration I could, uh, on something I normally would probably wouldn't do. Also, I had some exhibitions scheduled, which didn't happen. I had one solo show in Italy and some group shows, which are postponed or canceled. But still, I mean, this, I don't know, maybe there will be less exhibitions this year. This is for sure. But nevertheless, I don't see the major kind of distraction. And I hope it will get to the normal kind of rhythm next month, half a year or something. By the end of the year, I think all the planned exhibitions will be happening. Are you able to tell us more about the feature film, you know, what it's about, what themes you're working with? Well, it is a very unusual film, I think, for my filmography. I have 20 short films I made already, <laughs> starting from 97 till now, 2020. Some of them very short, like just a few minutes. Some of them are quite long. I think the longest is 45, no, even one hour. But lately I was interested more in a stereoscopic video. I did few stereoscopic films already, like one kind of documentary type. The other one is kind of a sort of uh, stereoscopy, which was created using found footage. And this time I thought maybe to, to use uh, opportunity to involve actors and to write a script and to develop some dialogues and use a story. And the story is, uh, I was studying actually tales of the 100-year-old because I want to go back to this end of the 19th century when stereoscopic photography was very popular. In a way, this was kind of probably starting point of departure, you know, like what was kind of world when the stereoscopic photographs were, made, uh, were, were taken in Lithuania and in second part, starting from mid till, till the end of, mostly through the second part of 19th century. Then were not that many photographs made, possibly as it was like in UK or France, but still there were quite a number. And those look amazing. I mean, you see places and people very realistically. It's a very nice format, this stereoscopic photography from 19th century. I was thinking what kind of mentality was then, the people, what, what kind of dialogues they were talking and, you know, what kind of lives they had. So I started to read tales and other kind of documents of what you could see the direct kind of communication of the people and uh, sort of see this kind of understanding of the sort of surroundings and you see that there was still a lot of magic in the sort of lives. And they were much more dependent on nature. Uh, here in Lithuania, I mean, yeah, it was still very agricultural country. This was completely different type of life, you know, probably very archaic in a sense, up till I think first decades of the 20th century, many people were living the same way as they were living for a thousand years. You know, this kind of people on the, on, in the land, the kind of this agriculture, developed agriculture, they had really rich folklore, rich kind of 
And these people were photographed in stereoscopic format, like 130, 140 years ago. So all this kind of interested me to, to see what I can do about this material, about these photographs. And I made a script. And it's very technical in one sense, because it's about stereoscopic film, but also I'm looking for some magic, in it, a little bit of magic. So it's kind of a bit different work. I've done within the last 25 years, but I guess it's uh, why not to do something a little bit different. Of course, yeah, that completely makes sense. Of course, you want to be evolving your practice. A lot of your uh, your previous work has dealt with the cultural memory of the Soviet Union. You launched your artistic career in the early 90s, of course, just after the collapse of the USSR, and several of your films deal in particular with monuments to Lenin, Stalin, Karl Marx, and others who were frequently commemorated across the former Soviet Union in this way. I'm thinking of films of yours like The Head, which is an edited version of a documentary about the East German sculptor Lev Kerbel, who in 1971 made the world's largest monument to Karl Marx's head, or something like 20th of July 2015, which you showed at the Maureen Paley Gallery in London a couple of years ago. So I wondered why this focus on monuments in particular has kept coming up in your work. It goes back to maybe more than 20 years ago, when there were completely different issues for artists who studied together with me or around the same time, simply because basically we, that generation, had to invent what kind of art kind of, you know, associated with the place we are living, you know, because it was no, there was no international sort of image about Lithuanian art. Before 90s, it was part of the Soviet Union and cultural, let's say, cliches, they, are, they stay in the people for a long time, you know, like, on one hand, it is, it is understandable, but, uh, you know, as a young artist just graduated, you want to change everything rapidly, or that would be different. And so basically, starting from the beginning of the 90s, we thought, I mean, we in the, at, that, at that time, you know, group of artists who were graduating at the time, what to bring in, what kind of language to change, because we were kind of unsatisfied with the language was used by then. We just kind of, you know, like very much, it was still figurative, but also very decorative in a sense. And and a lot of practices of all the colleagues we thought well make no sense when and you know there's no something they can build. So I think the first the first issue and the main thing for the artists of the nineties, young artists of the nineties was in Lithuania was to create kind of language or to adopt in a way language or kind of basically a lot to adopt, but also to invent something particular that people with other cultural backgrounds could really relate to work we were doing then. And it would be understandable what kind of images we are using and what it's about. And, and you know, it would be not kind of enclosed and kind of difficult to understand. And so, so this was very much issue of the 90s, I would say. And, you know, post-conceptual practices were sort of uh, introduced in, in my work and objects and uh, site-specific objects and sort of materiality, in a sense, without narrative was kind of, you know, I was experimenting with at that time. But then by, by the 1995, 1996, I thought, you know, like, because the, the social changes were so rapid here and, you know, life was really developing tre tremendously. 
uh, fast. And, you know, I thought the narrative, I, I need to use narrative in some form, really to be able to reflect on these rapid changes around me. And I thought, yeah, after some experiments with sound and these images and uh, this moving image, I thought moving image and sound is the most appropriate format for me. And many others have started to use video at that time, but I was interested in film for some years, almost for a decade. I was kind of ignoring video because I thought that images, uh, film, uh, film image of 60 millimeter, even super 8, it's much nicer. There is kind of, you know, link with the past. You know, if you're filming on 16 millimeter, it's kind of related to the 20th century. If uh, I, I was using uh, Super 8, it's kind of private. It relates to private kind of uh, documentary. So this was the, um, the time when I, when I started to work using a moving image. And then at that time, it was kind of... Another sort of, most of the society was rushing to something else, you know, like all this kind of harsh capitalism which just arrived, you know, like people, because of all these economical uh, difficulties, all the former Eastern territories, or former kind of solid bloc had, the people lost almost everything they, they had in, in a way, most of the people. But at the same time, some people rapidly became wealthy or were able to do different you know there was a kind of time of possibilities but not many people wanted these possibilities to be used in that way i mean i don't think that people who were not uh, making rushing to the businesses that they are not were able some people didn't want to do this so in this kind of environment of let's say wild capitalism there was a lack of narrative what is all about, you know, and what is kind of your particular and difference from the rest of the world, or now, let's say, rest of the profit-oriented world or capitalist world. And I started to reflect on the so-called recent past, using stories uh, from people who were who grown in the in the 60s in this kind of international modernist spirit, especially which was noticeable in the public space, in the architecture. So I was very much interested in architecture, which is kind of Soviet brutalism or Soviet functional, functional architecture, which is very much relating to the modernist architecture movement all around the world. You know, it's not that different. Sometimes even more spectacular or more, more grandeur even, you know. Like, so I, I was kind of fascinated about this sort of public uh, spaces and uh, architecture from, let's say, 60s and, and 70s here in Lithuania, in the, from the Soviet Union. And also uh, kind of in the stories, and the stories I was using by people, narratives I was recording, they were reflecting on this kind of past, and I was focusing not on the traumatic past, as many people did possibly, but more on this kind of how they were uh, reflecting on ideas of that time, and uh, maybe even idealizing that time, or starting to reflect on that time from the perspective, from being middle-aged or already older people, or mature people, to the time when they were younger. So they were kind of I think by 97, 98, 99, there was still needed time. But by that time, they already started to reflect people I was interviewing or I was kind of recording they, they, uh, or involving in my films. They started to reflect on this recent past. Yeah, so 
public planning, architecture, fashion of that time, music of that time. Also, public monuments were also uh, my interest, how people relate to them, like let's say 10 years after collapse of that regime. But there were still kind of the plenty of the monuments. Now hardly you can find one. They're all gone, especially after the 2014, the second wave, and uh, most of the monuments from the period, uh, I mean, sculptures mostly are removed from public sphere. So that was kind of, uh, let's say, beginning and early stage of my film and video practices here in Lithuania. Lots of the films, you know, you've talked about your interest in film as a material, and several of those films deal quite interestingly with the possibilities of editing. One of the first films of yours I saw was Once in the 20th, 20th Century, where you reversed some famous footage of a Lenin statue in Vilnius being taken down. So it looks like the statue's being put back up. To me, that, that seems like a relatively simple and quite interesting and also quite amusing film gesture, but I wondered I wondered why you took that particular approach to that material. This video was made back in 2004, and it was commissioned by Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam. The museum, that museum was doing a show uh, reflecting on the 15 years anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, I think. It was a group show. I think it was called Time and the Game or something like that. And the curators of the show, they invited artists from Central East Europe to, well, to do something, uh, to reflect on these 15 years. I mean, I was thinking, I remember this particular moment because when the first wave of monuments were, were taken down from the centers of the cities in most of, of former uh, Central European countries. And I remembered very well how the statue of Lenin was dismantled in Vilnius. Because simply I was there, I was participating in that event, I, I've seen how, how it was going on. And then 15 years later, I was thought, well, it was a very personal moment and I want to do something about that experience I had when I was observing for a long time. My film is very short, eight minutes, but I was standing there at least three hours, even more, watching this kind of preparations and then actual down of, of this monument. And 15 years later, I um, gathered documentary material from Lithuanian state television archive, as well as I, I got some material from one journalist, one private uh, video journalist, and uh, I combined these materials and edited this film as it would look like people are observing not the dismantlement of, of this monument, but erection of the sculpture of, of, of Lenin. Even it's clear that this kind of manipulation, but yeah, relatively it is sort of, sometimes you could guess if it's true or not in a way. But, but then even there's kind of this distance playing with this sort of material that uh, you probably understand what's going on, but you kind of like it, it's sort of this sort of attract, it's kind of attractive, I think, in a way. Really, it's not about that it's coming to back to the same moment, but this work, I was um, when I was working, I was thinking about several things. One thing, and probably the starting point, was because I remember this 1991, I think, late August uh, days, that people were feeling really, in a way, free. Because 
of some events, uh, like some political events after this uh, break of the coup in Moscow, it was clear that uh, it will be not a return in the hard form of, uh, of the regime as it used to be for, for decades since the end of the, the end of the Second World War or, or even before. So definitely it will be something different. We didn't know what it will be and how it will develop, but definitely it will go to some reforms. And there was really big relief for most of the people that it will be something different now. So when I was uh, among the crowd observing this dismantling of the monument, I could feel that all the social spectrum is represented. Of course, mostly the very young people, students, but also quite as people who are probably had most of their life lived in the kind of in the Soviet and they, they also were observing it and probably it was a major event for their lives. And uh, so a lot of different people were reflecting this event in a different way, but in a way this difference was also uniting this crowd. It was a sense of kind of party and the hope of something positive would happen in the future, which was not that much <laughs> for decades that people living in the Soviet regime and honestly to, to say that starting from 70s most of the society was kind of not very disillusioned with the with the propaganda and with the basic ideas of the socialism because well it was not that convincing for the people anymore and it was quite corrupted state and so on. so people were expecting something new but the most interesting thing for me is that the people were as you can see in this video, they are occupying space of the square, which was restricted from activities, public activities. I mean, the square of Lenin was really something you would never think of going there, do whatever you want. Even it was not officially restricted to go there and sit for a while on the bench, but not for too long. And uh, this sort of situation, watching especially this material, video material, you see that people are behaving as the space belongs to them. I mean, 1991, you know, August 1991. By 2004, 15 years later, when I was editing this film, which is already 15 years later, passed since then, it already was different feeling, you know, like, again, public space was more kind of, the different interest now is also kind of dominant in the public space, you know, it's in a way, I wouldn't say it's all privatized, but it's not, does not belong to everyone anymore and this particular moment when people feel totally free in the one of the largest spaces or larger squares in the city i think that was and they became the actors in a way or the protagonists of of the events kind of historical events i think that was very nice in a way and you know with this kind of reverse editing of the material i was kind of also referring to well if, let's see, the beginning of the socialist state was called the revolution of October, October so, so what kind of then event is this? Probably from this Marxist logic, it would be a contra-revolution, you know, because it's sort of, with, people are coming with different ideas again. So when playing the video back, so it's again kind of going back to the moment when it was imagined, but with the material, when it's kind of ending this kind of, period of 70 years or so, or 80 years. So all these kind of manipulations and play, kind of cultural play with the footage, I think it kind of creates sort of interesting, it amuses people, I think, a bit.
Yeah, and it's quite different in tone to the film you've made just before, which is one of my favourite films of yours. The short film you made with the English filmmaker Peter Watkins called The Role of a Lifetime in 2003. This film, of course, combines your interest in film editing and film as a medium that you know manipulates and perhaps distorts things for its viewers, particularly the possibilities of film editing. And it consists of found footage from an archive in Brighton, drawings of uh, Peter Watkins himself, and drawings of Rutar Park, which is a kind of theme park where a lot of the Soviet monuments were were taken. There's a similar thing in, in Hungary, Memento Park, where discussions about what to do with these monuments didn't really reach the conclusion of either keep them or destroy keep them in place or destroy them entirely. And so they ended up being put in this theme park on the outskirts of, of the capital city. You know, there's an interview with with Watkins, who I think stopped giving interviews shortly after, but at that time he was living in Lithuania in self-imposed exile feeling really correctly, I think, that his films had been censored and unfairly neglected in the United Kingdom. I mean, we did an episode on Peter Watkins a couple of years ago. I'm a huge fan of his work. And I've actually been watching it quite a lot during the current period, because it feels to me like there's a parallel between his interest in the the nuclear threat and the potential destruction of society that nuclear war would bring about, and the ceasing of human activity during the coronavirus crisis. But also Watkins's powerful interest in the media and the problems with the media, with the form and content of the media. So I've been very interested in him lately. And I think I actually discovered him through your film. So I wondered if we could talk about what it was like to work with Peter Watkins on that film, why you were interested in him in particular, and the combination of the images that you used with with his voiceover. Probably I will not talk too much about Peter Watkins' work. I think it is still... For not still, but is already quite known and admired by by filmmakers and visual artists in the UK and in Europe, particularly. I think he's very, very known artist and some professionals. And also, he's known as a media crisis critic, as he says himself. So he posts a lot of material, what he thinks about. So he's an activist as well, and this is his activity. I know he's he's still. Doing this, I, I met Peter last year. He was visiting Ukraine again. He's well. He's fine. Doing something, and I hope he will come. Well, now it's difficult to predict when the people will be to start traveling normally again. But he was planning to come back to Vilnius probably this summer. But now it's not so clear. Anyway, Peter was living in Vilnius, I think, from '95 till nine two thousand. One two thousand two. Then he went away, and then he returned for another year and a half, or another year or two. And then, yeah, he left for France. He, I think, he lives in France now. And during that time, I somehow got to know that this really experimental filmmaker is—I can't remember who told me—because he had friends there, and he was visiting, probably meeting other filmmakers there. But he was so probably different from the people he used to meet in Vilnius up till early 2000 when I met him. And somehow I got to know that he is here. And I started to read about him, start to, what kind of person he is and what he has done with his uh, films. And, and it was for me very, very interesting because at that time I did already a few films, short films of mine. 
And in a way, there were some similarities with his films he did a few decades ago. And I thought, wow, I'm just kind of starting to think and starting to experiment with something. But this person living in the same town, which is not that big, already went through this in a much bigger scale, in a much bigger, with a much bigger ambition and with much bigger political engagement. So I had to have to meet him. And somebody told me, and I think I called him and asked for a meeting. And after first meeting, we start to meet regularly. I think every two, three weeks, meet for tea in Vilnius. And we started to talk about film, about him. He's very gentle, but also sort of not easy to talk about many things. But after a few meetings, we started to talk about different professional aspects of filmmaking, visual arts. And after, I think, one year, he said, well, I'm probably leaving Lithuania with his partner. She's a Canadian Lithuanian origins. They were there for some years. That we, we probably are going to, to move somewhere. So I said, Well, it's uh, so, it was so nice to, to talk to you. And yeah, it was like, uh, in a way, you know, I could get his view and his comments on, on media, on filmography, in films in general, on the cinema, let's say, and also my attempts at that time, experiments, was very valuable to me. And uh, I thought, Well, we just started to know each other, and he's leaving. Well, I thought, maybe, what can I do? I asked Peter to, if he would agree that I would record one of our conversations. I had no particular intentions. Just to have, as probably as a, as a sentiment, as a memory of some conversation we had. So we talked one, and I, I brought a recorder. So I recorded this conversation. He left in a few months, and... Um, I was commissioned to do a work here in England and basically in Brighton for a very kind of strange and particular project called Art and Sacred Places, which was mainly commissioning artists to do work in churches and cathedrals. Because I think this project is that to involve artists in the churches which were not so much used at that time. So not many people are coming, so maybe artists will kind of revive interest of people to visit churches or cathedrals. I don't know how it would work. Uh, how, how did it work? So I went to Brighton to a research on this particular commission. So I went to archive, and to, which is, I think, at that time was part of the art school there. And I met some, I think, writers group. Or, well, of course, I did see this St. Peter's Church. And then I came back and um, I was thinking that probably some parts of our conversation with Peter Watkins is very much would make sense probably to use for this work, which I'm going to present in Brighton. That was 2001, 2002. I was at least a year in advance contacted by the curator. Well, I wrote to Peter Watkins and asked if I would be able to use parts of this conversation we had as part of my film, which was commissioned. He was okay with that. He asked what kind of project, who's doing that, and so on. He's always kind of uh, particular. He wants to know, you know, and I gave him answers, and he was okay about using this material. Then I thought how I would combine these different things. My conversation with Peter Watkins, 
The footage of Brighton, which was filmed by two filmmakers, Jeffrey Cook and somebody else, who were filming Brighton since late 50s till, I think, mid-70s on 8 and Super 8 film. Very nice footage, very particular. Also, I thought Peter Watkins is not in Latin at that time, but I wanted his image, you know. So I involved a young Latin artist at that time. So because the commission relatively was sort of one, looked like one year, but in fact, when we start produced. So I, I thought there must be some parts of kind of animation in the film that there would be some, you know, images of Peter Watkins, but not photographic images or not film footage, but the drawings, you know, like representing him like a secondary information, like a drawing of person, which is, of course, representing that person, but obviously there is a creativity. It's not a document. It's something created. It's a created image of some person. So these three basic elements was there. So footage of Brighton, which was for me a middle or small English town, probably many other places could be similar. Well, Brighton is very nice town. But I mean, there are some, some views which could be any place of that size of, the, of town in England. So it's kind of representing of me time when P Peter Watkins was kind of leaving England. You know, this is like 60s. He left, I think, 67 or something. So there's footage from that, let's say, period, 60s. And it's kind of relate to the country where Peter Watkins was still there. And then he's talking and he's reflecting, you know, on his sort of experience, probably since, mostly since then. He, well, he starts his, I edited his part of his, our conversation with him in a monologue. So he's basically talking about his work and about his kind of basic positions of, of his views on media, media prices. So there's kind of this material from the black and white and few color shots as well from 60s. And then Peter Watkins is talking about what has happened with his work and what he did and how it was seen by Kovalev. That's how it was accepted or not accepted. And, you know, so it's basically talking what has happened in the future. And then he is himself as an old, but still kind of in a good condition, man is sort of represented in the drawing. So this kind of jigsawed voice and jigsawed and the image is sort of creating kind of non-synchronized video where the viewer has to really think what he's seeing and what he's hearing and kind of put it together using his or her experience about media and probably about some knowledge about Peter Watkins. Then all this comes together when people were using their own knowledge as well. Yeah, that was my intention with this work and how I was thinking about it when I was working on it and when I did it in 2003. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really beautiful film. It's, it's one of my favourite artist films and we'll share it with the show. Another work of yours that I particularly like and was very struck by when I saw it that also engaged with film history in a very interesting and creative way was Revisiting Solaris, which I think you made in 2007. And yeah. this film's the final chapter of Stanislav Lem's science fiction novel, Solaris, which of course was famously filmed by uh, Andrei Tarkovsky in the early 70s. And you know, the Tarkovsky film is obviously known for its beauty, it's quite slow pacing, it's maybe less known that Tarkovsky left out the final chapter of Lem's novel, where Chris Kelvin, the central character, 
returns to Earth and reflects on his time on Solaris, on the planet. And, you know, you made this film with to the Lithuanian actor Donatus Banionis, who played Kelvin in Tarkovsky's film towards the end of his life. You also made use of Eduard Artemiev's quite iconic rendition of Bach that was used in the Tarkovsky film, it appears in your work, and you represent the planet Solaris with photographs of the Black Sea and photographs by the early 20th century Lithuanian symbolist artist Mikolaios Cialionis. And the overall effect of the film, I think, is really beautiful and very moving. I wondered if you could tell our audience why you wanted to film that final chapter of Lem's novel, the overlaps you used with the Tarkovsky film, but also the stylistic differences, you coming from a sort of video artist perspective, perhaps, a film artist perspective, uh, and what it was like to work with uh, Banionis on that film. Talking about Donatus Banionis... He was one of the kind of iconic or very known, very popular, let's say, Lithuanian, and also Soviet artists. He was known in entire Soviet Union, basically uh, not because of Solaris, but also other films. He was in quite a few films in, which were very known in, in the Soviet Union. But for me, his character, his Chris Kelvin at Solaris by Tarkovsky, was very, for me, moving work. I've seen this film, I still was in a school, maybe it was 17, 16 or something, and I went and I spent these two and a half hours in the cinema. And I must say, it was one of the strangest cinematic experience I had at that time. It was nothing I have seen before. And I left really kind of confused about it. First of all, because the, all the conventions, what cinema is in a way were kind of broken in front of my eyes and then they come back in a way together and probably later and I didn't understand why and what is, has happened and uh, later I when I was already starting to think about making this my sort of short version or kind of reflection on Solaris that Tarkovsky Solaris has a particular quality that in the film there are fictional characters, and some of these fictional characters representing fiction in the film, because they are not real people, but they are reflections or sort of simulations of real people, which are kind of seen by some characters as the kind of materialization of their experiences in their earlier lives when they were in the earth. It is very strange to see actors kind of playing, let's say, people, and then a fiction's appearing, which are also people. But you see that they are not people, you know, and this is kind of so realistically made. And you know, like Donatus Bernanis is, is kind of, he has, he's seeing the visions of his dead wife is appearing. Well, they are kind of starting emotional life again, and they kind of fell in love. And it was really strange to seize this, especially when I was 16, 17, and when kind of love stories are attracted to me. And this was one of the strangest or ever I seen. And it was something very strong, very strange there. And this kind of quality of being fiction in the fiction was in a way really effective to me, like really changing understanding of the cinema as such. 
Yeah, since then, I was probably was, you know, like, I couldn't forget these experiences. And I think when by 2005, 2007, I was producing one work after another one. It was a very dynamic period for me. And I thought, well, I was spending a year in Berlin at that time, and I started to uh, prepare for this short film. I read again a novel of Stanislav Lem, Solaris. I've read it also before, but then I was focusing that I already knew that, but I already was more focusing that Tarkovsky changed the ending of the, his movie totally different how the novel is ending. Actually, it is changing concept very much. What Stanislav Lem was intended, I would say that Stanislav Lem's novel has much more materialistic explanation about what is this unknown planet of conscious planet is and what it does. But Tarkovsky, he still kind of mystified it in a way. And he put sort of like human and biographical dimension in this story. And I think it is quite a big difference. Uh, what is message from the book and what is from the film. Even both of them are great artworks. Great. But they are also different artworks. And I thought, well, uh, maybe I should work on the last chapter of Stanislav Lem's uh, novel, which was basically not used by Tarkovsky, or there was something else done in the film. Because in the novel, this astronaut... He wanted to touch physically or kind of land on this conscious planet and would see what it would happen. He actually wanted to meet this strange planet. And there is kind of this materialistic approach that he lands on this. Like in a Tarkovsky film, he goes back to Earth and he goes back to, let's say, human experience. And he kind of goes back to his homeland and he meets his father. He was probably not felt like so good about this and, and whatever. So I think it's quite different interpretation. I wanted to do this chapter more in the spirit of Stanislav Lem's book. I invited uh, Donatus Bonuandis, the same actor. So Tarkovsky's film was filmed 73, I think. Well, 72, 73, released 74. And I was doing 2007. So this is like uh, 30 something. Yes, difference. So I have the same person who kindly agreed to be in this modest project. And yeah, I simply wanted Donatus Molinis again to be a, an astronaut or Chris Kelvin, but in Lithuania. So I choose few sites where I asked him to go. And I was kind of interested how he would feel there, you know, like what the emotions would be there coming to him. So there was like a modernist architecture from the 60s. There was a television tower, like very high. It's the highest point you can go in Lithuania. And also we went to the prison, to the former KGB prison, which was in a kind of cellar where this sort of people were tortured and also they were executed as well. So these three major sites, I wanted to bring him and film him, how he would uh, feel there. There was not much text suggested to him, a little bit, not, but I explained him just, just, I was asking him before shooting what was happening during one scene or another scene in the film. He didn't want really much to reflect on that, at least not in a documentary way, like telling about this. 
And I said, well, you just think about that and you just be there, you know, and, and remember and, and so on. And we had this kind of game. He said, well, please tell me what I should do as an actor, what kind of text you want me to suggest and what kind of character I have to create. I said, no, you don't have to create nothing new. You have to remember what you have done 30 years ago. And he was not so comfortable with this task. Uh, but somehow we had three days of this sort of experience of sessions of working through these three locations. And um, I have filmed him. And later I edited film, I edited text from the book on the top, which was kind of known for him and for me. And also, yeah, there was kind of some reenactments of few scenes and some characters involved. Because Tarkovsky involved very much biographical dimension in his uh, film, so I also thought, well, I can do also the same. I involved my wife, and we have a little uh, kind of repetition of a few scenes in uh, the film. So so that is basically... And the photographs by um, Lithuanian painter and composer Nikolaus Kontinus Churlonis was very interesting. He was uh, invited by some, I can't remember now the name, but like a uh, mecenat, somebody who supported artists at that time from St. Petersburg to go with his family for the vacation, uh, the Black Sea to Anapa, I guess. So Chilonis took some photographs there of the Black Sea, and I think they are really, really beautiful, these photographs. Uh, it's very much... Uh, in the spirit of his paintings, which are, well, it is a symbolism, but it's already a late symbolism. But the symbolism is kind of changing into sort of abstraction. Like Kandinsky was very much inspired by Chirlone's paintings. And, and, you know, like, so it's kind of late symbolism, which is sort of becoming blurry. And, well, it's kind of, again, there's sort of mythological things in it, and but already kind of abstracted stories and layering uh, watercolors layering and it's, it's beautiful it's sort of pale beautiful paintings i would say but the photographs is kind of you know it's still photographs it's a document of nature but also in this sort of very emotionally dense landscapes or something and i thought they're beautiful and tarkovsky was filming surface of black sea to represent solaris like this planet in his film and actually, there's sort of the similarity in these images, you know, in the photographs by Chirlonis from 1905 and film scenes from Solaris filmed in 1972 or 3. So I, th I thought it's really kind of interesting link, you know, it's different kind of eras and diff different epochs, but there's still this kind of density. And then with these interpretations by Stanislav Lam as well. So all these kind of different aspects I wanted to put back in this short version of my interpretation of the last chapter of Stanislav Lam's novel. Yeah, thank you. It's really interesting to hear hear so much about the film. Like I said, I'm I'm very, very fond of it. There's one one more film of yours I'd like to give a bit more time to, which is the 45-minute film that you mentioned, Restricted Sensation, which you released, I think, 2011. And this film looks at homosexuality in the Lithuanian Soviet Socialist Republic in the 1970s. It deals with a theatre director and producer who is persecuted by the state for his sexuality. You've said elsewhere that the treatment of 
the director's sexuality stands for wider censorship in the Soviet Union and beyond. So I'd like to ask you why you used homosexuality in particular as a theme, because yes, I think the film works on a metaphorical and allegorical level, but I think it also works, you know, directly as a record of what was done to gay men in the Soviet Union and as a warning against being maybe overly nostalgic for the Soviet Union. So I wondered if you'd like to talk a bit more about that film in the in the time we've got left. Mm, I remember, in a way, very strange relation. But it is not about remembering, but it's kind of about seeing from a later perspective, you know, like, that in a way, so society was kind of erasing homosexuality from public sphere. I was not part of this, let's say, culture or part of this life, which was very much hidden. But still kind of you could sense that it's present, uh, especially, you know, like in the cultural field more. And I didn't know much about that. But this film was also commissioned. And it was a thematical commission, you know, like the collective was uh, very much uh, interested in this subject of basically of AIDS and of the societies which are very negative about homosexuality. So I choose this little study about how homosexuals were treated and what the experiences they were in the Soviet Union, or particularly in the Soviet Lithuania. So basically I found PhD work, I think so far at that time, probably I don't think of them, or maybe, I don't know, but it was probably one of the first. And what interested me, because in this PhD work at the university in Vilnius, there was quite a lot of evidences, I mean, a lot of materials from homosexuals of the time, because later it was not easy. First of all, they were very old people already by then, when this PhD was done, I think, also around 2000, so 2005 or something. And there were very interesting texts or, uh, yeah, this kind of new world opened for me in front of. And I wasn't so much interested in creating allegorical or symbolical characters that they represent something else or different. But also there's a documentary aspect in it, because there's really, I studied how these people were treated, what kind of texts were used when they were questioned by uh, interrogators and such things like that. Even I, I was improvising a lot, but what was interesting for me that homosexuals were treated in a way different from other suppressed groups, like for political residents or even cultural underground or something, because state was using them, but also very much trying to involve, to be part of the regime. It's a very sophisticated system because homosexuality was criminalized, so it was basically a law that you can treat a person, basically only male, it was not, did not apply to female. There is very possibility of wide interpretation of this kind of law, you know, like, oh, if you collaborate, you can do this, you know, sort of, this sort of tricky situation. I was trying to, to make a, this 45-minute film, but basically there's no answer how you should be, either you are homosexual or not, it's not very clear, but if you are accused of homosexuality, which are social, professional restriction and political implication, basically there is no answer how to be. And in a way, it is also a fate for many artists, you know, like when you step into a kind of artistic career, 
for different reasons, for creative reasons, for career reasons, you are often also in the situation where there's no answer because there's so many factors depending. There's no way to take right or positive one way. It's always uh, many, many compromises for different stuff. Yeah, so this kind of particular situation in the Soviet Union of young homosexuals coming from artistic surrounding was very interesting material for me to work on. I would love to you know, talk more about this and others of your work, but unfortunately, I think that's all we've got time for. So, Diamantus, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great pleasure. Thank you. I'm really looking forward to seeing the longer feature film that you've been working on and maybe we'll be able to talk to you again when that comes out. Certainly hope you'll be able to bring it to the UK sometime. Listeners, thanks for staying with us today. We've got more of these sessions planned. You can find more details of those shows and our back catalogue on Twitter at sweet underscore 212 or on soundcloud.com slash sweet dash 212. Subscribe to us on patreon.com slash sweet 212. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Thanks a lot for listening. Take care. Goodbye.